Hi again, everybody. I'm Duke Kip, host of Asia's Farm to Fork, the Five Good Questions podcast. And as we draw to the close of 2022, we thought it would be fun to maybe take a different approach with the last uh, few episodes. Uh, as you know, if you listen to the show, if you listen to the first 27 episodes and heard our first 27 guests, we always pose the, the same last question. The exit question is, what do you see coming uh, down the road? What the future may hold for Asia's food systems and maybe in the light of something positive, whether it be technology development or something um, that may be realized in the, in the future that will be positive result for Asia. So we thought it'd be fun to take a compilation uh, look at that. So each of these episodes you'll be listening to to close the year, we'll hear from uh, those various guests and, and their insights on what the future may hold. So sit back, relax, uh, enjoy this compilation again of our previous guests. And, and again, from all of us here at uh, Asia's Farm Report, five new questions. Happy holidays to everyone. I look forward to continuing the conversation in 2023. On the one hand, you think about, you know, how bad is geopolitics? How severe are climate pressures and high or low, you know? And then on the other hand, you know, coming back to a lot of the stuff we are talking about, including technology, how much more can we break on through to the other side in terms of tech transformation that has social license, that makes business sense, and that it has regulatory enablement after due risk assessment. So is there a high ceiling, no limits, or is it very low, not much more than today? So the future is perhaps somewhere in that two by two matrix. If I'll bet, and I'm not really a betting man, you know, except on the market, uh, I would say that we probably need to brace for this high volatility, uh, high stress position for the global food systems context. If so, then on the other axis, it would really be better for humankind and also for the earth if we can push that ceiling up and up. And how do we do that? You know, so from a square, let me leave you with a circle or onion coming back to, to what I mentioned. Um, I think that uh, Janet Yellen spoke recently about friend shoring. So that, I, especially after the current crisis broke out, is about centering your international value chains around people you trust. And you trust them in uh, fair weather, you trust them in a rainy day. And therefore, for your strategic commodities, I would suggest food is right there and all the inputs for food, energy, maybe even water, you know, um, you've got this circle, circle of trust. So that's one poll. The other poll, you know, started or even predated COVID. It is this poll of, uh, if not autarky, at least a thought experiment and a real experiment in producing more right at home, you know. So perhaps the future of food is trending towards some interpolation between autarky and French shoring. Hopefully not to the exclusion of global exchange. Uh, I'm a free trader. I believe in free and fair trade. And I think that that should be the baseline, but very much the trend would be towards this. And in some ways, at least, perhaps it would be good for the environment. If you plan in a constrained position as we clearly are in now, it actually has the impetus for more innovation. And I think the role of the food community is to make sure that the innovation successfully steers towards being planet-friendly and being ESG, because that is the utmost sustainability. That was Luke Tay with Cornucopia Futurescapes. Now we hear from Sunny Tababa with CropLife Asia. Hey, 
am an optimistic person at, at heart and with very good reason, especially now. You know, you think of 10 years, it's not really that long. If you look at just, for example, you have the golden rice, three years of it is really on the piloting stage. So before it can really take off. But one of the reasons is that golden rice will take off, BT eggplant will take off, drought tolerant wheat will take off. Then you will have a variety of GM crops on the ground, coming from the private sector, coming from uh, the public sector. And then recent developments also are very encouraging. So just early this year, you know, China approved the cultivation of GM corn. And China, if you just think of China, this is more than 40 million hectares of corn right now in their, uh, in their farms, the uh, aggregate area. It's a huge thing. And Indonesia has approved GM corn and they have around 4 million hectares. So all of this will really help the society, the respective governments in terms of ensuring stable supply of grains so that the allied industries like the feed industries, the livestock industries can be ably supported. Uh, if there will be supply disruptions, then the impact will not be that great because they have a stable domestic supply. And with China cultivating and Indonesia uh, very soon, then maybe India will be the next country because uh, with all of this development that will, you know, there, there is always a competition, uh, something like that. And that will also lessen the import and uh, have a stable supply of corn for the local industries of India. And there is genome editing products coming our way. So I'm just very excited. I'm not even looking 10 years. I'm just looking like within three years, I could see non-browning apples in the supermarkets because these are qualities that can reduce food loss and food waste. So imagine if your apples don't turn brown after leaving them on open air, then you don't throw them away because they don't get brown. So I'm very confident that with the diversity of products coming out of these plant breeding innovations and, and enabling the regulatory environment, I'm pretty sure that we will be able to overcome the challenges that are before us, whether it arises from climate change or even from conflict or hopefully not any more COVID. <laughs> That was Sunny Tababa with CropLife Asia. Next up, Rob Hume from the Borales Group. Yeah, look, I think um, there, are, there are probably three things, right? So increased awareness of waste at all touch points along uh, the food value chain. And how do we redistribute, whether it's crop waste or processing waste or supply chain waste, at all points of the supply chain, acknowledging that that's a resource that we can not only capture, but actually valorize and, and transition or transform into a higher value uh, end products for, for the food system. Um, and so being able to transition from, you know, a textbook approach to circular economy into actual tangible examples where we can demonstrate that actually feeds around in a circular approach. That in the next five years is gonna be critical to underpin investment in that space. I think when it comes to energy, there's a lot of talk 
some would say a lot of hype around hydrogen. You know, I, I do think that that holds a lot of promise or, or let's say a broader category of, you know, alternate energies, whether it's solar or hydrogen uh, or wind or tide. But the acknowledgement that, you know, investments in that space are being made into renewables and less and less into you know, fossil fuel based uh, energy systems. Acknowledging that there needs to be a transition. We need to be sensible about that. We can't, it's a little bit like if we think about alternative protein, we're not advocating for going all to, you know, cellular meat or fermented uh, products or plant protein. What we're saying is we are going to need an incremental supply of protein coming from all sources, including animal protein. Let's commit to doing that sustainably. And so for somewhere like Australia and other countries, the opportunity is to position ourselves as sustainable providers of all forms of protein categories, uh, not just a, a specific category. And so what that's actually doing is driving innovation within each of those uh, sectors. We're seeing that in animal protein uh, for the push to animal welfare, uh, focused on animal welfare. But there's more to be done. Uh, we see it in focus for you know, CSIRO investing in and other countries, companies investing in methane suppression for ruminants. But I think it's also driving investment in uh, fermentation and cellular agriculture. And yes, uh, there's a question mark around scaling in that particular sector. Uh, but I'm actually quite confident that with with a similar investment that's been made into you know, animal genetics and production systems, that actually we can we can get there in a form that's delivering incremental protein. And so, just generally, I, I tend to be a glass half full type of guy. Um, you know the the current conflict that we're seeing, uh, geopolitical conflicts, not just in Ukraine or in, in Eastern Europe, but also here in Asia. Um, I think that potentially is going to continue in some shape or form. And what it's going to highlight or what it's going to do is drive investment into mitigating that risk and shoring up supply chains, whether that's domestic supply and processing, uh, whether it's uh, shoring up feedstock for part, part processed materials, you know, plant proteins and pulses are a good example coming into Singapore for value adding out of countries like Australia. But it's also going to drive, drive greater awareness. What does a sustainable business model look like? Uh, how can we actually tick the box on a PL to keep shareholders and investors satisfied, but at the same time maintain a social license to operate and have a minimum benchmark for environmental benefits? And I think there are things that we think about every day. Sometimes it's you know, it's acknowledgement also that this is a rising tide lifts all boats. So we're all in this together. Uh, we're all working towards a common objective. And yeah, it'd be great to have a podcast in five years' time and see if some of those things have come to bear. That was Rob Hume from the Morales Group. Now we hear from John Cheng from Innovate 360. I think in Singapore, you're actually seeing quite a lot of technologies happening and a lot of uh, interesting startups coming over because Singapore, as you know, is the first country in the world that allowed the sale of uh, cell-based meats. And that's opened up a new whole sector. Uh, you know, I just recently came back from Israel and, and, and it was amazing to see how many startups are, are spinning out from, from Israel. And, you know, one very interesting point was that they were looking at the US because of market size, um, but they were also looking at Asia and they were thinking of literally coming to Singapore because of a re our regulatory framework to actually start their businesses here. 
And that was something that was, it's amazing that, you know, our government has is so forward thinking, but at the same time, you know, that kind of sets the runway for the future. And I guess I'm really excited about this because I'm hoping to see that as we start to scale up, as we bring in more disruptions in terms of cell-based technology, that one day we'll be able to see it in the menus at affordable price, well adopted everywhere. Uh, but that will take time. I think uh, that's still at least five years away. I do see some uh, bright sparks in the near future. But I think uh, in terms of regulatory, there are still challenges, not just in Singapore, but different governments need to come together and agree that this is something that they will want to look at as a group. And I think uh, this kind of disruption is something that I'm hoping that 10 years later, our kids or the next generation would say, what, oh, what? you mean you used to slaughter chicken? <laughs> Maybe 10 years later, people will be saying, oh yeah, everything uh, is all made in fermenting tanks. Yeah, a quick way and an easy way and a healthy way as well and, and a more uh, responsible way. So hopefully that will happen uh, in the near future. That was John Cheng from Innovate360. Next up, Pak Fitrian Ardiensha from IDH. Two or three things I would say. Uh, the first one, of course, uh, we need to focus much more on finance, but not necessarily on the availability of the finance. I mean, the money is there. Um, plenty of uh, financial institutions have, uh, have pledged of, uh, let's say, $100 million, of dollars, including our investment partners. But there's a lack of uh, pipeline down the road to really fit to that kind of uh, demand or appetite coming from financial institutions. So if you can focus so much on developing that kind of pipeline, work together with uh, farmers, aggregator, processing facility, could be mills, could be uh, factories on the ground. I think we can find some good elements of uh, such pipelines. We have already uh, shown uh, in Indonesia and in some other countries in Asia some successful uh, deals, for instance, like $12 million uh, of processing facility uh, with sustainable palm oil that is ensuring uh, the coverage of independent smallholders because uh, the financial institution will not, like I I mentioned earlier, will not invest directly in independent smallholders, but through this kind of uh, investment to uh, the mills, uh, then uh, with the mills improvement, they can cover much more independent smallholders. As a trade-off, the smallholders can uh, provide more uh, as well as meeting the standard of sustainability, RSPO, ISPO, or what have you. Uh, I think that kind of uh, uh, pipeline development would be key in, in, in our view. We need to focus on certain commodities, maybe two or three, uh, that are being cultivated uh, quite widely across uh, Asia because then farmers, producers, and companies can learn from each other, including also governments. Palm oil, for instance, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand are doing so. Maybe rice and corn in many areas in Asia, they are also producing uh, quite similarly. Uh, but I think we also need to uh, find ways to support locally produced crops because the ticket size may be not necessarily big. But if you uh, provide support and then straight away uh, outputs and results, farmers would be uh, having this kind of sense that they got help uh, right away. This could include crops like horticulture fruits, uh, spices that are also uh, contributing to crop diversification and climate change resiliency. So 
we need to find uh, that kind of uh, model that can combine uh, big commodities or big crops that are cultivated across Asia, but also with uh, some local uh, type of context in which then you really, really are addressing options or, or supporting options for farmers uh, locally. So this can be done at local level and then, then elevated at the regional level, provinces or state, and then of course, country level and inter-countries uh, level uh, in Asia. Hopefully with that, we can uh, see some uh, light at the end of the tunnel in that regard. That was Park Fitrian Ardiencia, then from IDH. Next, we hear from Han Mun Yip, a regional leader in alternative proteins. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. Um, one is for big food company, I think the arrival of alternative protein and the opportunity it brings um, has convinced the big food company to relook at the way uh, they are producing food. When I talk about relook, meaning they pay more attention to um, some of the feedback that they get, uh, sustainability especially, uh, uh, producing food more efficiently. But at the same time, they are also embracing uh, technologies and it just makes sense that way. So traditional farming industry has started aligning themselves with sustainability goals, which is very good. My personal vision is um, I would envision in 10 years' time, half or more of the eggs, meat, and dairy will be from alternative protein sources, uh, especially when the price parity is expected to be uh, reached at that time. Uh, In fact, if you look at the past couple of months, I believe the plant-based milk in Netherlands or Germany is cheaper than um, dairy itself. And then same thing goes for meat in in Germany, I believe. And then in the US, um, plant-based egg has just reached uh, parity with, with mama eggs. And in the investment industry, we have not actually expected that to reach so fast. So in 10 years time, I envision half of these uh, proteins will be produced by alternative uh, methods. And I don't think the consumer would notice them. Um, then another 10 years later, I would expect we stop asking if this meat is plant-based or cell-based. In fact, I would, I would expect something opposite happens. So if we are presented with a piece of meat that is produced in the traditional ways, we would ask if this is safe to consume, does it contain growth hormones, antibiotics, and how are we treating the animals and so on? In 20 years' time, I want to see mini bioreactors in the home churning out meat the way we make coffee uh, from our Nespresso machines. And if that happens, don't worry about border lockdown, cupboard footprint, and, and stuff like that. I think once you get the technology in place, a lot can happen. And especially for the challenges that we have here, our food systems is very challenged, not exactly very efficient. And then we have climate change. So I think the acceleration would be faster than before. That was Han Man Yep, regional leader in alternative proteins. Now we hear from Dr. Siti Abdul Malik with Singapore Institute of Technology. I think there have been discussion around um, alternative proteins, cellular agriculture. I would like to look at it more from a systems uh, perspective. So I would say that efficiency in the regional food value chain would be one development that I think will come into fruition in the next 10 years. Because we are already seeing uh, some fruitful efforts uh, at this moment. For example, 
when we look at the efficiency at the producer's level, there have been a creation of ecosystem that allows for economies of scale. For example, like privately owned family farms to large uh, corporate farms have been collaborating to actually increase the scale. And when you have economies of scale, it drives down the price of food. Therefore, one way that we see that it's been happening, at least in some parts of Asia, would be the pooling of farms between the large and the small uh, farms and sharing the profit on a simple, for example, area basis. Also looking at there is a collaboration between farmers and fresh produce uh, cold chain uh, logistics uh, providers where government is providing incentives to these cold chain logistics providers to allow on-time delivery uh, with minimal uh, post-harvest losses. So this kinds of collaboration between small farmers, large uh, conglomerates and the government together allows the increase of uh, you know economies of scale that will drive the efficiency in in the supply chain at the producer's level. And at the processor's level, which is the midpoint of the uh, food supply value chain, we also see some adaptation to the economies of scale. For example, you can see that there are quite a few of uh, merger and acquisitions in the last, you know, five, 10 years. When you have this uh, acquisition, it allows consolidation in efforts to secure raw materials uh, that's required. Uh, for their processing. And not only that, they share operational processes and therefore there's an enabling environment for scale when we have this kind of consolidation of companies that has different markets, we can actually open up new avenues for growth for the food companies. At the retail and distributors level, uh, we can see that there have been customizing of portfolios to meet local consumer demands. Hence, that provides efficient delivery of these products to the target uh, markets. And not only that, because of the now increase in the middle class with increased disposable income, this customizing of products for their needs. I guess, you know, increase the reduction of food losses. And not only that, you know, we allow more affordable products to get to the target market. So I think uh, with that, I would say efficiency in the food supply chain in Asia. I think I would say thanks to the pandemic that actually allows all these initiatives to blossom because before this, it's, you know, uh, same old, same old business. Now it's no longer business as usual. It is business as unusual. And hence, I think the supply chain is looking at how to efficiently get the produce, you know, to the target markets without having environmental unfriendliness issues coming into play. So that's the reason why I said earlier that small farms can and does play a role uh, in in getting this efficient supply chain uh, up and running. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review and subscribe. We look forward to bringing you another five good questions interview. 